0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andre Krenkov, and I'm currently working on my PhD at Stanford. And in this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing fellow Stanford PhD, Alex Tomkin, who is in his fourth year uh, studying computer science at Stanford, advised by Noah Goodman, and is part of the Stanford NLP group. His research focuses on understanding, building, and controlling pre-trained models, especially in domain general or multimodal or settings. Thank you so much for joining us for this interview, Alex.
1: Thanks for having me, Andre.
0: Any, anything you want to add to that intro? <laughs> I just cut off a bit from your website.
1: No, you, you went to the right place, so... <laughs>
0: Yeah, I would hope so. It seems uh, it's up to date. So that's good. (laughs) Okay. And then, uh, yeah, usually we begin the same way, uh, which I think is is usually a very interesting question, which is how did you get into research generally and get interested in AI in particular and get into research on AI?
1: Yeah. Um, So I definitely like didn't know, you know, from the, from the time I was born that I wanted to do like, you know, research or, or work in AI or, or, or whatever. I think I kind of knew that computers were something that were pretty interesting and, and, and exciting. Um, you know, in, in, in middle school, I had like a, a, one of my math teachers, like went on maternity leave and we had a substitute math teacher who just like ditched the curriculum and like taught us how to program our like TI-84 calculators. And that was like just super cool and fun. Um, and, uh, I didn't really do too much CS though until, um, uh, undergrad, you know, um, I went to undergrad at Stanford and I did sort of like the the CS curriculum there. I thought it was super interesting, but also was like really into philosophy and into like, you know, political science and I don't know art and, and, and things like that. But, um, I think, yeah, a re, research is just like super fun because it's so like open-ended you can just go like really, really you know, deep and, and talk to people and connect ideas. And that, that always seemed like pretty exciting to me. Um, but in some, some HCI research in the, uh, HCI group, uh, here, um, which was really fun. We were working on sort of, um, uh, projected interfaces, um, from quadcopters. So we, we hooked up like, you know, a, a small projector and a depth sensing camera and, and, you know, sort of very like jerry-rigged and, and, um, uh, uh, and had sort of a really fun time there. But... I kind of, yeah.
0: Were you projecting interfaces on like walls or
1: tables? On, the ground. So they're on actually, the ground. The quadcopter would actually hover up uh, and uh, project it sort of around a person and they could sort of interact with it um, via gestures and things like that. Interesting. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was a really fun fun project. and uh, uh, But I think what what's kind of got me really interested and AI was, you know, I, I do a lot of photography. Um, and I was kind of fascinated by like how these like facial recognition things worked. And, and, um, it seemed just kind of magic because I was like, how could you program that explicitly, you know? Uh, and, uh, I think just that idea of like learning, um, was really interesting as opposed to sort of being explicitly told what to do and kind of just kind of like hit a bunch of the buttons, you know, from the philosophy side, from the sort of like just curiosity, like dive deep into things side. And, and from the sort of like, you know, social impact side, because, um, you know, there's a lot of really like, uh, it's not just like science stays within itself. It's sort of, is is part of the world and interacts and affects the world and the world affects it. And, and so, um, yeah, I was, uh, uh, I ended up sort of doing, uh, uh, research with a, from a 224N project with uh, an awesome, uh, Student um, in uh, uh, Dan Jurafsky's lab here, uh, Ignacio Casas, and, uh, and and that um, class is is
0: the deep learning NLP one. I don't know if it was deep learning then. It was yeah, I, mean, I think cool. it was
1: my, my the time. I took it was the first time they merged the like NLP the original NLP course and this sort of like deep learning for NLP side of things and, and put it together. And it was uh, uh, it was it was really fun. It was it was kind of wild to me at the mm-hmm. time and still kind of is you know the sort of transition that was going on there yeah great class i really enjoyed
0: it uh you think when day around 2016 or when around did you take it do you think
1: yeah, i think like 16 17 i forget mm-hmm. exactly what year um 17 yeah um yeah and all the lecture notes and, and i think videos are up online for anyone who's listening um along with uh, 231n um the vision uh alternative so um, highly recommend. Yeah, I, I read the lecture notes for that, and uh, that was uh, that was really great. Um, and uh, yeah, I sort of just like kept doing doing research and 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 uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, I don't know, thought it would be really fun to keep doing it. So <laughs> they they were kind enough to let me stay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you went what undergrad to PhD at uh, Stanford, basically. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Nice. Yeah, that's similar to me in a sense. But I I wasn't quite as certain. I did my master's after my undergrad at Stanford and then then decided to stick around instead of uh, uh, going right in. Um, But yeah, it's always nice when people just discover research. You know, it's a good fit. So we (laughs) well, I'll keep
1: doing this yeah I mean I definitely you know i I did a summer sort of in the startup accelerator, which was really fun to start you know a summer at, at industry. It definitely wasn't like clear a hundred you know yeah it wasn't the only
0: thing you you enjoyed, I suppose
1: yeah, yeah, no, no, no.
0: mm. yeah. I think it's interesting uh, looking back on I was doing my undergrad you know uh twenty eleven to twenty fifteen I guess you were roughly in the same range. So just as we were doing our undergrads, the whole deep learning wave in mm-hmm. AI was was really growing. And I remember taking like Intro to AI in 2014 and, and thinking, or maybe it was 2013, and thinking like, "What's deep learning? What is all this hype about? <laughs> <laughs> is it just neural networks?" So in some sense, we got pretty lucky in uh you know being just getting into it uh, at, at the moment where everything kind of. Mm changed and there was so much to, to look, look into.
1: Yeah, I feel like I've only been doing, you know, deep learning stuff for a relatively short amount of time and yet have already gotten to witness like, I don't know, several paradigm shifts, you know, it's like first deep learning comes to, you know, comes, comes uh, rising up in a whole bunch of these different fields and then you have like sort of BERT and then you have GP3 and, you know, it's, it's uh, pretty interesting how much is happening in such a short amount of time.
0: Yeah, yeah. At first, it was uh, millions of parameters, and it was hundreds of millions. Now it's billions. Uh, there's <laughs> some trillions.
1: <laughs> Someone in the NLP group, when um, when Bert came out, or something like that, like this is this is several hundred million parameters. Did you see in the paper? It's several hundred million. You know, that's a big model. Um, yeah. So now that it's just deployed, it's you know, running all your Google
0: queries. You know, no, no big deal.
1: Now it's uh, you know it's just like these models were called you know what uh, Bert Base and Bert Large you know mm-hmm. it's kind of like in you know now Bert Large is a sort of moderate model at best you know um, mm-hmm. it's kind of kind of funny
0: yeah now that's a good segue to talking about some of your research which deals in some sense in this sort of scaling up of AI and in particular of the paradigm that's been going on more recently is scaling up not just a model size, but data set size. Um, And that has been enabled by really going away from labels. So collecting human labels is expensive. You can't really like you can collect a few million, maybe if you pay enough people, but that's not the best way. And so lately in research, people have found that you can actually do well with just having raw data, just images, text, whatever. Uh, So maybe to start talking about it, uh, can you just give the listeners a bit of an overview of this area of unsupervised and especially self-supervised learning, which which you work in a lot?
1: Yeah, I think yeah, self-supervised learning is just um, pretty exciting for a couple of reasons. One is the sort of you know uh, so the first is like how do you when you come to a problem, say as a as a human, you know, you come to it with a whole you don't come to it as like a blank slate, you know, you come to a new problem with a bunch of different concepts, skills, abilities, experience that um, you've acquired throughout the world. And uh, you're able to sort of leverage that in some way when you attack a new problem or, um, uh, you know, a new approach. And, um, you know, it's one of the things that I think makes us much more efficient learners, you know, when you're, when you're a PhD student who's been studying something for a while, you pick up new things. You can read papers a lot more quickly uh, compared to like, you know, when, when I remember when I was an undergrad and I was like, I have to read the same sentence 12 times because there's so many words. I don't understand, you know, um, now you don't even need to
0: read the paper. You just look at the <laughs> figures, you know,
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the quick, the quick glance, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that's pretty, pretty fascinating. And, You know, for much, uh, for for a lot of machine learning that's maybe currently deployed or uh, that, you know, uh, prior to the sort of self-supervised turn, um, a lot of the time it's sort of, these networks are coming to a problem from scratch, right? Um, They're coming with randomly initialized parameters and they're being trained on labels for a particular problem. And, you know, there's this question of like, these models are, you know, require so much, so much data. but humans don't, and, and I think you know self-supervised learning um, tries to address an aspect of this, which is you know what if you didn't come to a problem from a blank slate? What if you came to it with a set of existing you know, uh, concepts, uh, abilities to extract different you know uh, patterns from the data, um, you know exposure to a wide range of different um, different types of texts, maybe or images or, or other factors. And as a result, maybe you can learn a whole lot quicker because you're leveraging all of those existing uh, representations and concepts and background material. Um, And maybe you can even, um, you know, generalize a little bit better because maybe you've learned that this concept, which you're now relying on to perform a particular task, um, uh, maybe that same concept you've learned to link it uh, in many different domains, right? So in in, in the the clip model, for example, you know, it's trained to match images and text together. And, you know, if you have... uh, you know, the word, uh, you know, a, a chair. If you have a chair uh, that's captioned for a photo of, you know, a large throne versus a small, you know, stump, right? You're somehow bridging between those very, very different um, uh, aspects. And so if you train a model, you know, to, to predict something based on chairs, maybe it will generalize now a whole lot better due to the, the breadth of the data that's it's seen. So I think that's one reason that self-supervised learning is super interesting. Um, and exciting as a research area. The other one, um, which I think Alyosha Afros makes, uh, tells very, very well in this, in this talk, which maybe we can link, is that um, you know supervised learning or label-based learning relies on a sort of top-down semantic categorization of the world, where we humans, we look and we say, these are the labels that a network should learn to predict, or these are the, the tasks that it should learn to, to do. And we hope that, you know, by specifying a large, complex set of labels that uh, you, that these models can learn the useful skills, which will then generalize to new tasks.
0: Yeah. And so, like slow. ImageNet has like a thousand classes, and then that's about it. Even though obviously there's way more, somehow a thousand is kind of the biggest data set out there that's commonly used.
1: Yeah, and it's an amazing you know achievement that represents you know real like breadth of uh, and slice of of the internet. Um, but when you sort of think about the breadth of a task that's something like language modeling, where, you know, it's it's a large, uh, rich data set that's comprised of anywhere from, you know, a blog posts to uh, Wikipedia articles to tweets. And and there's a whole separate question of how we should curate and, you know, um, uh, compose that data set in a, in a good way. Um, you're not, in this case, saying, we're going to classify this as a tweet, we're going to classify this as a blog post, we're going to classify this as a what. You're just trying to predict the next word. Um, and maybe that sort of raw base sort of form of a task um, builds a whole lot of a broader range of capabilities than if you were to, say, spend a whole lot of time and get humans to construct um, a, a label-based learning signal. Um, and so that sort of a, it builds these representations from the bottom up, as opposed to presupposing we know like, what they should be from the top down
0: um yeah it's interesting in some sense a compact way to summarize self-supervised learning is it is supervised learning you still have a label but the label comes from the data you're you're taking some of the data and using it to predict other parts of the data so you're inherently trying to kind of understand the associations and correlations and so on without uh you know human labeled kind of uh, secondary task, which has been like initially early days deep learning, ImageNet turned out actually you could do this pre-training, right? And then somehow by luck it worked on downstream stuff. And then it uh for some reason self supervised learning on images didn't work as well until really pretty recently. And I think in part because of the whole NLP uh, discovery that, uh, yeah, transformers and so on,
1: um, uh, just training on huge data just works wonders. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting. And I, you know, I don't want to oversell it, which is, you know, still the choice of the self-supervised learning task is itself a form of, you know, uh, explicit supervision where we are deciding at what level should we perform this task? Should we perform it at the byte level at the word level? We perform it at the level of raw audio uh, waveforms. Um, you know, contrastive learning, which we'll maybe talk a little bit about in a, in a bit, is another self-supervised learning task where the task is designed based on these data augmentations. Um, and uh, and so there still is this sort of uh, human uh, design or bias that's sort of seeping in um, to the self-supervised learning objective. Um, it's not fully intrinsic, um, but uh, it maybe gets us a whole lot closer to this sort of bottom-up categorization.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and just to give a bit of a sense of scale, uh, part of the benefit, obviously, is you don't need to label, you can use more data. And so with images, um, you know, ImageNet is a few million images. Uh, Facebook trained on billions of Instagram images, and that's because there weren't no labels. And likewise, GPT free trained on like <laughs> the whole internet. So that has been part of a the trend there. And speaking of, yeah, speaking of your point of uh, the, the human design of kind of a task to some degree in self-supervised learning, that brings us to one of your papers, which I think is really cool and kind of addresses this, and that's view maker Networks, Learning Views for Unsupervised Representation Learning so i'll just let you go ahead and uh give the elevator pitch and, and
1: yeah tell us what it's all about yeah so um there's a whole bunch of different paradigms for self-supervised learning uh, for different fields for different kinds of data um and one of the ones that's been really popular in like in computer vision is contrastive learning and the idea here is you know rather than having an image and, and training it to predict a particular label like is it's a cat or a dog Instead, you take an image and you transform it in two different ways. Uh, So maybe you'll apply a rotation and a crop and a color jitter and and add some noise and produce one view or augmentation of that image. You'll do the same to produce another. And now the the sort of contrast of learning task is to match those two images together, um, but push away images in representation space that are derived from different examples. And so uh, here, you don't need labels explicitly. The labels are basically, can you identify whether two images belong or are derived from the same original instance? Uh, and that's why this is often referred to as an instance discrimination task. Um, and so it's uh, it's a cool paradigm because it, it doesn't require explicit uh, human-defined labels. Instead, it sort of relies on this design of these data augmentations and the way in which you push apart or together different examples um, in uh, in 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 the design of the al- algorithm, um, and so what we were sort of interested in, in in this problem because, well, all of a sudden you can theoretically do this for tons of different data types. You know, you can do this for images. Maybe you could also do this for sensor data. Maybe you could also do this for audio or speech data, um, and you can scale up maybe to much larger and diverse data sets that don't rely on this top-down sort of definition of labels and classes. Um, But it turns out that we've spent a while developing really good data augmentations for images. And uh, I think the the SimClear paper shows this really well, which is that the particular data augmentations you pick have a huge impact on how well contrastive learning works. Dozens of percentage points separating the best and the worst uh, augmentations. And it's not just that you need one augmentation; it's that you actually need compositions of these augmentations. Um, and and these so, augmentations
0: are like jitter, cropping, changing colors, noise—these sorts of things that yeah. are sort of heuristic. Like, there's no scientific basis per se. It was just sort of people tried and, and these things worked, right?
1: Yeah, and basically in the SimClear paper, they just tried like they have this big grid of like you know uh, different different types of combinations of different uh, data augmentations and and seeing which ones work and which ones don't. And and yeah, there's not really a sort of clear or simple uh, principle um, that'll tell you, you know, which which ones you should pick um, in order to do well on like a broad range of downstream tasks. And so, uh, you know, I think it made that point really, really well. And I think that kind of got us interested in, well, is there some sort of better way that you might be able to learn these types of data augmentations for contrast of learning so that you could do, you know, you could broaden the reach of it to many of these other domains where, you know, we haven't spent a whole lot of time maybe designing good data augmentations for a a wide range of of other fields, like maybe sensor data, super interesting, important, can be used in a whole bunch of different areas. But uh, if there isn't this sort of community that over time over the past, you know, five, 10, 15 years has been developing data augmentations, um, maybe you're still out of luck. And so um, we thought, well, uh, what if you could get a neural network to basically take in an image and output, you know, different augmentations for um, uh, uh, for the original image? Um, and then maybe that could, you know, get rid of the need to say, all right, we're going to have this like large set of, you know, we're going to try this sort of color jitter and we're going to try this sort of warping. and We're going to try this sort of, you know, uh, blurring effect, and, um, you know, it turns out that you, uh, you can have a neural network, but then you have to sort of figure out how that neural network is going to be trained, you know? So there's a whole bunch of, we, we found this cool image-to-image neural network, which takes an image and outputs another image. But uh, it wasn't sort of clear initially, like, how should we train this network to produce good augmentations? Um, and so the simplest thing you can do is you can say, well, we're going to train this network adversarially, uh, so we're going to basically train this network to take in an image and output, you know, two images that are as different as possible, so that it's really, really hard to match those two images together. Um, so it's like
0: a bit like the opposite of a GAN, where, well, generally in generative stuff, you you have like images of faces, and you try to make the adversary uh, create, you know, the most similar face, right? Whereas here, you're training the adversary to generate the augmented image that's kind of ma- messed up. Right, and then it still needs to be recognized as that patch, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to make things that are different as possible, as opposed to sort of matching some sort of uh, some sort of distribution. That's a great way to put it. Um, but you know, you can't make them too different because otherwise, how are you going to be able to like pair them together? You know, um, and uh, and and so to do this, we basically like come up with the simplest possible um, constraint on the difficulty of the perturbation, which is like been really, you know, studied a lot in, in adversarial robustness, incidentally, and that's just like a, an L, L, L1 norm constraint, which basically says we can output a perturbation and you can perturb some pixels a lot, you can perturb some pixels not as much, um, but overall uh, it has to sort of add up to a certain uh, delta and we bound an limit of how much yeah. you can mess things up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. if you want, you can draw with a sharpie over like part of the image, or you can draw with a highlighter over all of the image, um, but you can't do uh, do both. Um, and as simple as that sounds, you know, uh, it, it actually led to some pretty good results. So, we were uh, able to basically come up with augmentations that performed, you know, pretty comparably to image-based augmentations. Um, while like doing much better than existing augmentations for uh, speech or sensor data domains, and uh, so we thought that was a kind of a, a cool way to maybe broaden the approach or the approachability of contrastive learning to these different domains, and, and maybe you know benefit more scientific domains or other sorts of uh, domains where contrastive learning or self-supervised learning more broadly really hasn't been able to uh, see the benefits, you know. Uh, and and you know, one, one real big benefit of, of self supervised learning is that you know, if you have a lot of unlabeled data, um, maybe you don't need as much uh, labeled data for the particular transfer tasks or fine tuning tasks that, that you need. So if you're doing maybe uh, some sort of medical imaging task or some sort of sensor task where you know you really need to rely on an expert, um, then maybe you won't need as much of their time or their energy. Um, and you can do a whole lot more with a whole lot less. And so, um, I think that's also kind of really exciting is thinking about how can we open up the doors of, you know, uh, self-supervised learning and, and, you know, machine learning more broadly to a whole bunch of domains besides the ones that we've already studied before, like, you know, computer vision or NLP, uh, for example.
0: Yeah. And yeah. That will help because now you not only don't need to design the perturbation, you don't need to kind of explore that space. You don't need to run hundreds or thousands of trials. Instead, so you could just do this training and, and hopefully just find those things automatically.
1: Yeah, um, and you can always, if you have some ideas of good perturbations or good augmentations, combine them together. We show that that can actually work pretty well. Um, and uh, and yeah, you know, just hopefully it it helps in that sense.
0: And the perturbations that this approach found for images, I would imagine, is pretty different from, you know, the standard ones or or maybe more chaotic and hard to explain?
1: Yeah. So, um, you can't actually output, uh, some of the most common perturbations like cropping or flipping. Um, but instead what you can do is you can generate a whole bunch of maybe more diverse and strange, uh, image-based perturbations, which, uh, you know, I think folks should definitely check out the paper to see a bunch of examples of these. But sometimes it draws shapes, sometimes it draws speckles, sometimes it sort of—it uh, seems to be sort of attentive to like the foreground or the background of images. So it'll try to like mask out parts of the sky or things like that. Um, so it's uh, one really interesting thing is that these these uh, augmentations are input dependent, um, and so uh, we'll actually have some uh, follow up work showing um, some cases where this is really useful. Have input-dependent views, especially in, in cases where your data is sort of really varied, And maybe you really can't expect to have a one-size-fits-all solution. Uh, you really do need to have uh, augmentations which are dependent on the particulars of your data.
0: Mm. Yeah, this, this makes me wonder. It seems like augmentation is also important in supervised learning, right, to just make your model more robust. And it feels like you could just plug that in here as well. hopefully end up with a more robust model even if you have labels
1: yeah yeah we we, uh, have some sort of initial uh uh looking into that direction i think it's sort of uh pretty fun to think about you know how this could work in different domains or or different types of applications
0: Mm -hmm. and i'm curious also to ask about kind of a journey of this paper i think it's always interesting to go beyond what's in the final result, but sort of like, how did things start? How did, you know, what were the eureka moments along the way? And <laughs> what was like the pain that you went through also?
1: Yeah, it was definitely like really far from, um, far from, <laughs> uh, straightforward, you know? So, um, and it really
0: is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I think sometimes people draw this really neat and clean line, you know, right through the, the, the paper process. And, you know, uh, I think that's, it's great for, you know, expedition, but yeah, it's like always sort of uh, not always as clear. So this is a, a project with um, uh, a lab mate of mine, Mike Wu and uh, Noah, my advisor. And um, Mike and I sort of had just been kicking around a whole bunch of uh, uh, different ideas um, that we would sort of been hoping to, to collaborate on and, we thought we'd sort of like um, do a different idea every week, basically, and just sort of see which ones clicked. And um, um, it, it turns out that this was was the you know the first direction we tried, and we just ended up like sticking with it for for a while, despite sort of the whole uh, the whole setup that we were hoping to to try a bunch of different things. But the actual things we tried at the beginning, you know, totally weren't working. You know, we were trying to apply. Um, constraints on, based on the sort of embeddings of the images as opposed to the images themselves. And, um, uh, you know, we spent a whole lot of time getting like, you know, slight improvements over random, a little bit more, a little bit more, but, but it, it really sort of wasn't um, uh, wasn't working and wasn't sort of getting anywhere near, you know, the, the practicality that we sort of wanted. And then, um, you know, we, we made this switch towards, uh, applying things directly, uh, the constraint directly in the image space. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of super simple thing of like, uh, an L1 norm, uh, ended up actually working fairly well. Um, and, uh, so, you know, went from a whole lot of like not working to, to them then working. And I find that, you know, it's like, if something like your idea will kind of tell you often that it, it isn't working, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's not always the case. Sometimes an idea you know, this is the core idea um, isn't working, but there's just some sort of variable or hyperparameter thing you need to change. Um, but uh, in this case, I think it was it was changing the, the way we were applying the constraint to something a lot simpler. Um, and, and I think simplicity is a really nice heuristic for judging where an idea is going. Also, if you can explain it well, clearly, um, that's also a really good sign. So I really value simplicity in research and...
0: And it's nice to have those things that don't work along the way in a sense, because you understand the problem better. And it's it's hard to get to that simple kind of uh, elegant solution. And it's only after, you know, you, need, you have this puzzle in your brain and then all the pieces fit, you know, and s- somehow you just, you know, realize in some cases, I don't know, maybe you weren't sure, but uh sometimes it happens that you know you have this moment you write it down and then you're excited and sometimes it works
1: i find that i'm like often just very skeptical of <laughs> you know especially you
0: should never be over optimistic
1: uh, does this work maybe this just works in these two cases maybe this. okay so you know then like you try it on a couple of different things and and uh and, and you start to feel feel better um but, uh, but yeah, it's sort of sometimes an idea will click and I'm like, oh, that's a cool idea, you know. But I think that change to does this idea actually work in, in practice, you know.
0: You can hope it, it works, but not believe or expect that.
1: Yeah, exactly. 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 And, you know, it's not like a good idea will work in every single thing, you know, you try it on. Right. But if it is, uh, if it does work over sort of a broad range of different uh, environments. If it sort of opens up maybe new things you're thinking about, um, then I think that's, uh, that's something that you can believe in. For sure.
0: Yeah, that's that's fun to hear. Uh, do you know how, roughly how long did it take from starting out to getting to something that works?
1: The whole paper process took like nine months or something like that. Um,
0: uh, that's for me kind of a good time <laughs> i try not to go faster than that
1: yeah 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 i mean i think like once you stumble once we stumbled upon like you know the right formulation i think things sort of happen really fast but you can't just count that part you know you have to count yeah the, yeah the yeah formula, the, whole, the whole thing
0: yeah it's a lot happens in the last stretch but yeah. there's a lot of slower progress before that for sure yeah, and then uh, following up on that, uh, I think you had another very interesting work uh, that is related in, in some sense for sure, and that it deals with different modalities besides just text and images, and that's DABS, at a main agnostic benchmark for self-supervised learning, so DABS, <laughs> uh, which is pretty new, I think, um, and uh, yeah, how about we get into that?
1: Yeah, so... Um- yeah, this is, this is uh, pretty recent. It just um, got into the uh, uh data sets and benchmarks track, um, which was really uh, fun and, and cool that there was a, a new track that was so uh, focused on, like, you know, data sets and benchmarks and, and a lot of that expertise because I think it's sort of uh, really underappreciated. Um, and I'm glad that, you know, it's getting, getting the attention, focus, and, and skills that it needs. Um, but um, yeah, DABS really did come in large part out of the things that we were thinking about with the whole ViewMaker project. And, you know, basically, I really do think that a lot of the most exciting and, and impactful things that will have positive impact in, in machine learning will be, um, you know, in many domains where we really don't have a lot of active machine learning research, you know, on compared to like, you know, the, the tons and tons of publications that get written in, uh, in you know, on computer vision or NLP or speech processing, um, and so DAP is a benchmark that's sort of trying to measure, you know, how well can we build general purpose self-supervised learning algorithms? Um, so how well can you basically, if you're a practitioner, you know, and you're dealing with like, kind know, wildlife biodiversity data, or um, sensor data, or you know, uh, certain kinds of medical sensors or medical images, where there really aren't a whole lot of, you know, established um, techniques for um, you know how to, how to do pre-training well in those fields, can you just take a self-supervised learning algorithm off the shelf, not a pre-trained model, but an actual method for converting a whole bunch of unlabeled data in your particular domain into a pre-trained model that can then be fine-tuned or, or, or adapted really well to tasks you care about. Um, so just like in NLP, how we have you know, language modeling, and in, in computer vision, we have contrastive learning, you know, there's been some work in trying to expand this more broadly um, into different modalities, but, um, you know, we thought there should really be a sort of unified um, benchmark uh, or, or, or way to basically focus this community's effort on building domain agnostic, um, you know, general purpose, self-supervised learning algorithms. So the way DABs works is, is pretty simple, which is... We have seven different uh, large unlabeled data sets from different uh, fields or domains. Um, and the idea is that you have to come up with a single pre-training method. Uh, so a, a, a network um, and a pre-training algorithm, so a training objective, um, where you can convert that unlabeled data um, into a pre-trained model that can then um, be adapted, uh, you know, uh, through like a linear classifier or fine-tuning, etc., to uh, a range of labeled downstream tasks. So maybe for you know NLP, we have a, a, a large text data set, and then we fine-tune it on a whole bunch of blue tasks, for example. Um, for uh, uh, medical imaging, say we have a uh, um, the, the Chexford data set, where it's a whole bunch of chest uh, uh, x-rays, and then we try to fine-tune it for... whole bunch of different labeled pathologies. And so the idea is how much how much better can you do when you have this pre-training than if you just have sort of a randomly initialized model? And can you do better across all of these different tasks using the same sort of general methods?
0: And in this uh, Unlabeled Data, you have images, speech, text, uh, sensors, and captioned images. So you have, you know, pretty different domains, you know, representations of data, you know, obviously images and text and uh, sounds, audio are are quite distinct. So it'll be it would be interesting if
1: you could actually come up with a single thing that works for all of them. Yeah. I mean, the the sort of practical hope is that, you know, a researcher in uh, in maybe a, a totally different field like some sort of physics, you know, domain or some sort of ecological or, or maybe material design domain could just, you know, uh, not have to do get a whole bunch of machine learning researchers and found a sort of lab to, to design these algorithms that they can sort of just uh, uh, pay for the compute and then uh, put in the data and then have this sort of uh, model that sort of spits out. So that's a sort of practical, maybe, Motivation, but there's also this really fundamental like question, which is what is it? What are the principles that make self-supervised learning work? You know, what is it that somehow ex- exposes these useful subroutines that these models learn, which can then be repurposed for you know a whole wide range of downstream tasks we care about? You know, I think in, in deep learning we sort of think of the world as somewhat hierarchical, right? Um, where you know for images you sort of learn these low-level feature detectors, which then get composed in these higher-level Detectors, and I think the um, the circuits work by uh, Chris Holan and the others is, I think, really uh, uh, interesting and, and, and motivating in that regard. But how do you actually get your network to learn that? Maybe you can try to compress the world, you know. And if you compress the world, then you sort of expose the sort of latent hierarchical structure that's sort of present. Or maybe you can do something with contrasts, like contrast learning, where you learn to distinguish images. From each other, which actually has a whole lot of other similarities to, to compression. Um, but, you know, those are the sort of two things that kind of motivate DABS, the sort of conceptual, you know, scientific questions, and then the can we actually uh, uh, have an impact on these neglected but really important domains.
0: Yeah, so one thing is you, I mean, as, as in a name, obviously, you introduce a benchmark and you basically introduce the task. Uh, which uh, is already quite significant. Uh, and I believe you also provide a baseline and an initial attempt. So I'm curious, basically, how how that went and then what was involved in actually coming up with something that, that could tackle this.
1: Yeah, so we come up with some sort of baseline algorithms to get people started. And yeah, it's actually pretty tricky to come up with the baseline here because networks, neural networks are all pretty sort of specific in a whole bunch of different ways. And, um, but, you know, there's this, uh, these transformer-based networks, which transformers have been applied in a whole bunch of different fields and and areas. And um, we thought maybe we could make some sort of general uh, baselines based off of uh, transformers. So basically what we do is, you know, uh, we allow for, you know, Transformers take in a sequence of vectors and then they operate on those vectors and do self-attention and and have some sort of output. So we said, well, what if we just convert all the different modalities into a sequence of vectors using a a limited set of of embedding modules? So, you know, if it's text, you can then tokenize it and turn it into a sequence of embeddings. If it's an image or a 1D sensor array, you can turn it into a sequence of patches and, um, Basically, that's the only sort of thing that, that changes uh, across these different modalities. And then they all go into the same transformer and the, imbe- the pre-training objectives, we have two. Um, one's more based on sort of contrastive learning uh, models and one is sort of more based on these text-based approaches of replacing or shuffling embeddings and trying to detect which ones have been modified. Um, but they all operate the same way now in all the different modalities. Um And so uh, we actually do get gains over random models. So actually pre-training with these two objectives, Emix and and Shed, actually do help broadly, uh, but they don't always help evenly and they don't help on every single domain. And so there's still a whole lot of work for coming up with more general purpose uh, pre-training objectives. But you can't just do something like mass language modeling where it requires you to have words. You can't just do something based off of... uh, contrast learning because you don't necessarily have the augmentations and some of these things are discrete. And so, yeah, it was actually fun and, and challenging. And we hope that other people, you know, are able to, to build and, and push those numbers out.
0: Right. And so here you, uh, did you just evaluate training kind of train one model for one modality and then, um, see if it works well for that single modality. And then across some of them, it worked well and across some of them it didn't work quite as well, is that right?
1: Yeah, so we we come up with two pre-training algorithms, and we apply those pre-training algorithms on all the different, you know, we train models pre-training on all these different unlabeled data sets, and then we do uh, transfer learning, uh, or adapt those models to the downstream tasks uh, for each of those models, and so we do that for each of those two algorithms, and. Yeah, you know, it turns out that the contrast of learning-based algorithm, EMIX does better on continuous domains like uh, audio or, or images, and the um, other domain, the one that Shed, that's based more on NLP-based objectives, does better on, on text. So mm-hmm. you see some, uh, some interesting patterns there.
0: Mm. And you mentioned before this kind of cool thing that's starting to happen on going cross-domain with things like Clip, where you have both text and image. And so I wonder if you're thinking to just, you know, train one model to do two domains <laughs> and, and see if it works, uh, which is not really, hasn't been cracked, I don't think, in, in deep learning so far. And it seems interesting.
1: Yeah. So we have one domain, which is like uh, images and text that are sort of paired together. So it's a multimodal domain. But I think we really do want it. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that domain agnostic algorithms are exciting is because maybe they don't really care whether you're multimodal or single-modal or, or whatever, it's all um, data. And if the network, if the objective can learn to basically encourage the model to pick up structure, then maybe it'll basically work for multimodal data just as it'll work for single data. So um, I think that's definitely why we included the multimodal domain in the benchmark. And it's also a living benchmark, so we hope to introduce new domains to basically test how how general models that people propose are um, mm. you know, and see whether they do generalize to these more sort of higher-impact uh, real-world domains.
0: Yeah, I'm curious, what kind of sensors uh, or sensor data you have
1: in there? Yeah, so we use... Um, uh, we look at the task of human activity recognition. So if you have a wearable sensor, basically, mm-hmm. uh, and you do things like skiing or walking or climbing up and down stairs, uh, those are the, the kinds of uh, sensor data that, that we have. It's the PAMAP2 data set, actually. Mm-hmm. It's curious.
0: Cool. Yeah, because uh, there's a lot of different sensors, obviously, and, and some of them are very popular in uh, different subfields of AI, for example, LIDAR, you know, 3D point clouds. And that's an example where you need quite uh, specialized networks typically. Uh, so <laughs> it'll be interesting to see this benchmark grow to have these sorts of more
1: complicated or more specialized things like LIDAR. Um, yeah. One, um, you know, I think maybe you could do... Um, I think there are some like transformer based networks for like point clouds or things like that, but you could uh, another cool work is these uh, this perceiver architecture, uh, which basically um, is intended to be domain agnostic and uh, basically uh, it does cross attention basically over the whole image. And so it's uh, kind of interesting and cool. And, and I'm excited to see if, you know, some ideas like that can be woven into the, benchmark to uh, uh, avoid the need for these, um, I think, fairly uh, sort of simple but still slightly domain-specific embedding modules that break up the images or the inputs into these uh, uh, these fixed tokens.
0: Yeah, I wonder, uh, I guess, what would be the um, aim of the benchmark? Would it just be coming up with different algorithms? or also changing the model, or um, even kind of this processing of data that you do?
1: I think they're all sort of interconnected. Uh, so it's, you know, I think we're seeing that some architectures are maybe uh, more or less, you know, work well in different types of regimes or things like that. And so I think, you know, uh, we'd be interested in people proposing new types of architectures that work well with the existing algorithms proposing new algorithms for pre-training and then also maybe proposing new algorithms for adapting those pre-trained models to downstream tasks. So, you know, there's some, you can do fine tuning or you can do a linear, linear classifier, but maybe there's other sorts of methods, uh, like some of these lightweight fine tuning methods that end up uh, having better performance.
0: Mm. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, uh, I think this has a fairly clear motivation and, and makes a lot of sense. So I think looking in from the outside, it feels like, you know, it, it just uh, has a very clear start and finish. Uh, so are there any interesting kind of hidden bits in, in this journey for this work that you didn't expect maybe starting out on it?
1: Yeah, I think it's just been really fun to learn about different kinds of data and data sets, you know, it's very easy to get siloed and in, into your own uh, bubble or research community. But, you know, when you start going a little bit broader, you see, oh, like a lot of the things that people are working on in the music space are similar to some of the things that people are working on in video. And, you know, I think that's been really fun. is really appreciating the, the breadth of the problems that people are trying to address with machine learning and maybe identifying some of these interesting bridges between them. And hopefully, you know, coming up with something that ends up being useful to to people applying things in the real world, because sometimes we abstract away, we try to abstract away, unuseful details, um, when we come up with research tasks. But I think sometimes we, those details actually end up becoming important, you know, like the fact that many data sets are imbalanced in the real world, have long tails, that we have sort of distribution shifts, and then the machine learning community sort of comes back and starts introducing some of that complexity back in. Um, and I think capturing a real broad range of modalities is, uh, is a way to maybe get a little bit of perspective on that.
0: Mm. Yeah. And, and speaking of this complexity, I think we have one more paper, maybe pair of papers to discuss, which is uh, you are one of the many co-authors of the uh, Opportunities and Risk of Foundation Models, paper, which talked about uh, sort of this topic of very large models typically trained via self-supervised learning. Uh, Well, Really, that's kind of the definition of uh, huge models trained on huge amounts of data and across many domains. Uh, This is a huge 200 page paper or something that is kind of summarizing that. Then he also wrote understanding of the capabilities limitations and societal impact of large language models. So, um, yeah, I think you led uh, some writing of training and self supervision, which we talked about uh, these prior works. So maybe we should uh, uh, delve more deeply into the AI safety and alignment bit that you cover, I I suppose, both in both of these works. and, And what you think is worth thinking about it, being aware there.
1: Yeah. I think uh, sort of AI safety alignment and, and thinking about, um, uh, there's a lot of questions that are coming up around um, what's gonna happen when these models are deployed in sort of real world settings. And uh, I think there's a there's been a really interesting sort of mix of folks in a bunch of different communities uh, talking about different concerns. So you have folks that are focused on geopolitics and how, you know, um, Uh, large models will affect, uh, you know, the relationships or tensions between uh, different sort of larger groups, you know, people sort of focusing in on issues of justice, uh, equity, sort of fairness and bias, and what happens when these things are deployed. And I think you also have a bunch of folks who are focusing in on questions of, you know, how do we know that these models are actually doing the tasks that we want them to do, as opposed to something that's maybe um, focusing on spurious correlations or um, maybe, Uh, models that have picked up, you know, the ability to, like, uh, uh, lie based off of, you know, uh, transcripts that they've maybe, like, operated off of. And so I think um, those two projects have been sort of a lot of uh, learning about many of these different concerns of these different communities and trying to sort of maybe synthesize, synthesize some some sort of takeaways or ways in which they relate to one another. Um, And specifically with regards to, like, uh, alignment, I think... uh, there's this really fascinating question, which is, as these models get sort of better, um, you know, and better and develop a whole bunch of different capabilities. Um, it's not always clear the mod- models. If you ever play with GPT-3, you know, that it's capable of a whole lot, but it can often be hard to get the model to do what you want it to do. Even if you know, it's a simple thing, the model can do it. You know, uh, it's, it's often hard. You have to kind of finagle it, um, you know, with these prompt uh, prompts and prompt engineering. And uh, I think there's some real questions there about uh, what's going to happen if, you know, few-shot learning models are ever deployed in the real world. Um, and uh, and so I think a lot of the questions of alignment that really interest me are when models are capable, you know that they're capable of doing the tasks you want. And the core challenge now is in getting the model to actually internalize that task and carry it out. Um, and so uh, I think we see this really clearly for uh, GBD3, like in the example I was mentioning, but you can imagine seeing this for a whole wide range of models, um, maybe trained for other domains, uh, or maybe, uh, you know, in the future, if these models are going to advance um, uh, and they're being sort of deployed in different settings, um, maybe run into issues there. I think there's, you know, tons of connections of like, you know, uh, to, across, you know, different fields, like, you know, a lot of, um, fairness related questions are relying on, um, understanding actually what different, you know, people want in a model. Uh, we sort of find it really hard to specify what it is, um, that we mean by uh, fairness in a lot of different cases. And, um, uh, you know, a lot of these fairness problems are safety problems. And so, um, I think there's, uh, uh, a lot of really interesting questions here about how we can uh, ensure that our models basically result in good outcomes when they're deployed.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. Early on, you mentioned one of the things you like about AI is that it impacts the real world, right? It actually goes out there, and this is to some extent. I mean, it's become more and more true over the years and as an outcome now you can't ignore that that's the case as a researcher uh, more and more and some people i think prefer to ignore it and just say oh i just work on the research and discover information and it's not my problem what people do with it but i think uh, as a community we're definitely moving towards the default that we do need to be aware of the potential consequences and uh, that's been an interesting trend, and I imagine you also are a big uh, supporter of that kind of movement.
1: Yeah, I think like you know, like I said at the beginning, the research that we do affects the outside world, and the outside world affects you know the research. It's sort of this like big uh, cycle, and it's you know, it's uh, impossible to ignore uh, always those two forces. You know, you have to sort of focus on on the problem you're working on, but I think some of the most interesting problems or the most important ones are uh, informed by both of those forces. And, uh, I don't think, uh, you know, especially as we realize that, oh man, like there's a whole bunch of things in these data sets, uh, because of the fact that we're scraping them from the web and the, and the real world, you know, uh, uh, is reflected in the web that maybe, maybe we shouldn't just scrape, uh, the web, you know, uh, without actually trying to get a better sense of what's in our data and whose data we're using and what it means uh, when we, uh, you know, apply this data in, in different sort of forces, so I think it's super important.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, fortunately, there's been a whole field of uh, fair, you know, uh, fairness, uh, interpretability. Uh, I think a couple other ones. <laughs> that uh, look into that and that's been a growing subfield of AI and it's very challenging and, and perhaps even more challenging than just getting things to work is is after we got the model you know how do we know that it is safe and, and isn't bad and how do we make sure that we can use it without harmful side effects uh, and, and that's starting to be worked on and yeah, I, I, you yourself, I guess, are are working on it, this overview paper.
1: So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's been really cool seeing different communities really coming together and, and um, having, I think, largely really like respectful and, and productive discussions. Um, it's obviously, it's really hard. It's hard when you have different communities coming together. Uh, it's hard always to have the same vocabulary. Uh, it's hard when, you know, a lot of the time were, uh, you know, online and, and maybe not meeting face to face, but, um, I've been really sort of fortunate to have a bunch of people being, uh, really generous with their time and, and, and energy, um, to, to speak with me on a bunch of these things. And, uh, it's been really great.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And, uh, speaking of kind of, changes in the community, movements in the community, moving a bit outside of research to other stuff you do. Uh, One of the things mentioned on your website is that you like mentoring, teaching, and and fostering a healthy and inclusive research culture. And that's been, of course, a challenge in CS, in particular with the inclusive part, who's still dominated by white men uh, and There's other issues, of course, in terms of being healthy still in academia. There's massive mental health issues. Uh, So I'm curious how you see this working, how you foster this change and and what you do yourself and and what you think should be done
1: more in general. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think there's sort of interpersonal things you can change. Uh, there's sort of cultural institutional things that you can sort of focus on. And I think you you need both and you can't sort of think about each independently. Um, I mean, one thing, you know, that I, I did was I realized like, you know, really the, I think a lot of folks really felt like the pandemic was really isolating. Um, and, you know, we were missing a lot of these like random discussions in the hallway or seeing sort of these like weak ties, which are, you know, the folks that like maybe you don't, get lunch with every, you know, two weeks or so. But like you say, in the, say hi in the hallways, you talk to them. You see a TGIF. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Uh, eating your Milano cookie or something like that and, and saying hi. Um, but uh, um, so, yeah, so I, I, I did this, um, this AI mixing thing where uh, a bunch of folks in, uh, in, you know, I sent out a big blast to the whole AI lab and, it was just a form, which is like, if you want to be paired up with a couple of folks every week, you know, sign up here. And, you know, I think like over a hundred people sort of like signed up and, you know, we had like a tons of different, um, you know, pairings of people who were like paired up randomly. And, um, I don't know, that's just been really, it was really fun for me because I got to meet a whole bunch of different people. Um, and it was just really like cool when other people just come and say, oh, yeah, like, a, you know. My friend here, like we met at like you know, one of those AI mixing events or things like that. And and so I, I think like that's sort of like one I don't know, pretty small thing. I mean it's not like it, it took, you know, just like organizing, sending out a forum, sending out these emails. But um that was a really fun way to sort of build community and and maybe connect people who wouldn't otherwise. Um yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because, uh, in some sense, I've, I've had similar experiences of when the pandemic hit, I tried to like, you know, uh, schedule like lunch, uh, co-working on video and, and we use donuts to do this random matching as well within the lab. And, uh, I tend to agree that I think a lot of us individually can do more that's not like required of us, but, that uh is it is initiative for kind of making sure people enjoy being where they are and you know people are just friendly (laughs) which i think is is often maybe people are a little too uh busy with their work and and kind of forget to
1: actually hang out and, and get to know each other yeah sometimes it's just it's so easy to be like see someone and be like how's your research going? How's the project going? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, you know, how are you? Like, (laughs) you know, uh, I don't know. I just think like, uh, I've been really fortunate to be surrounded by a whole bunch of like really kind, compassionate, empathetic people, Um, you know, especially some of the the senior students, my, you know, my first and second years on on campus. And, you know, I just think like, wanting to see a bit more of that, fostering that in the community, like uh, looking out for one another, I think is, uh, uh, is a really nice thing that um, I think we could, you know, you can't, you can't have too much of, you know? Yeah, for sure.
0: And uh, I think that's you can do various institutional changes and uh, that's probably necessary in, in many ways, but uh, this is also essential of just, you know, working more to, to focus on that aspect of fostering mental well-being in yourself and in people around you.
1: There's very clear and important, like, you know, institutional levers too. Like, are you investing in making sure that like, you know, uh, people are able to find good mentors and have like an inclusive environment to know who to turn to if, uh, if, you know, things aren't, aren't, uh, going so well and, and, you know, actual structural supports. I don't want to say that uh, it's only sort of interpersonal um, uh, those but as, an, are
0: all- as an individual for sure there are things you can do that don't require <laughs> you know, addressing these institutional things that are far more challenging for sure yeah it's it's interesting there's a couple of good examples at Stanford I think of things like that uh, for instance there's uh what is it like humans of AI or yeah uh,
1: that's a wonderful word
0: that's a wonderful you know. program yeah for listeners we have this thing where usually professors there's two professors and they invited to kind of just talk about life rather than research for an hour and just share how they got to where they are and, and uh, answer questions from students and things like that I think have been it's, it's nice to to have those as a sort of organized thing.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's it's really great. I just love the, the um, one of the structures is that each uh, professor will draw their sort of happiness curve over the course of their, you know, uh, life or PhD. And I just think it's like, yeah, just really cool to see. Yeah, everyone has ups and downs for a whole bunch of different reasons, including, you know, many of the ones that you're, you might be facing and, you know, I think like just more moments to, you know, humanize, recognize the humanity in in all of us is sorely needed uh, in and outside of the pandemic
0: yeah and especially it's it's interesting with professors because <laughs> it's easy to sort of see them as these mythical figures that are just like i don't know uh just amazing and superhuman but then you see this sort of thing <laughs> and, and you are reminded that they are just human and fundamentally no different from you as like a second year phd student or whatever right
1: yeah no absolutely um and the other sort of like thing on the more on the mentoring side is, um, you know, I found it to be, you know, it can be kind of hard to like find a, a, as an undergraduate, how to get involved in research. And um, that's something I'm really passionate about too, is there's this real big shortage of research positions. And if we could sort of, you know, in fields where it is, it's allowed, you know, I, I'm really a big fan of like group based projects where a bunch of folks can collaborate with each other, especially if they're undergraduates, learn from each other, get exposed to, to research projects. And that sort of opens up, you know, more spots, um, for people to, to come and participate. Um, and I'm also the, uh, instructor of, uh, CS 197 this quarter, which is a course on introduction to computer science research for undergraduates. And oh, okay. So we sort of like, I do a lecture on like, uh, um, the, uh, the sort of computer science research project, um, using a lot of really uh, wonderful materials from, uh, Michael Bernstein and Lisa Yan. Um, and, uh, then we do basically group-based, um, projects where, you know, uh, we have sort of three sections, AI, HCI, and uh, a biology, and, um, folks sort of work on projects, uh, in those domains, like real world research projects. Um, and so that's been really fun too. And I think like folks really enjoy getting a chance to like actually see what research is about. And I don't know. Um, I think that's also a nice way to like community build is to sort of, you know, broaden the base and, and. Um, yeah, there.
0: for sure. I think it's it's quite possible for many, because it is often sort of just not well communicated. And I think many undergraduates might just like not even consider it or, or know how to get into it. I remember from my time when I was getting to AI research, I was lucky to have a summer program that was just advertised as like a flyer somewhere to go to CMU and work in robotics. And then to do research on campus, there wasn't anything. So I just had to, like, look up the labs and email the professors individually <laughs> until I found some that were looking for students. So and that's still kind of often the case. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of weird, but um, it's cool to hear that some of these classes and initiatives are happening. Yeah, it's been really fun. And uh, going back to um, you know not just talking about research but also you know people as as humans and, and what they're doing, I like to wrap up with a bit of that. Uh, so yeah, I'm curious how do you occupy your time? That's not work. What are your main hobbies? How did you stay sane during the <laughs> pandemic? Uh, do you still do photography? All that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, I definitely. Uh, Still do uh, a lot of photography, which has just been a really fun way to connect with people. I love doing portraits. And so, you know, uh, I, uh, I still got the chance to do some graduation photo shoots this past year, which I really love doing. You know, you just get, get the zoom lens on so you don't have to get so close, you know, and mm-hmm. take off your knots. And that was a lot of fun, um, especially when, you know, it's uh, folks I've known for a while. And, you know, you're sort of trying to like, you know, you're trying to, make memories you know for them about the place that they've been for for so long Um, and then you know it's always more fun to do like artistic shots and photo shoots too Um, another thing i really love doing is uh, ceramics so there's Uh, actually a ceramic studio on campus um i guess this you know this is audio only but you know here's a (laughs) bowl that you know i made recently it's a very
0: nice bowl i i think yeah it looks nice uh good coloring for sure (laughs)
1: Yeah, uh, I, th- I find ceramics really fun because you, it just takes my mind completely, you know, I'm typing all day and thinking and this is sort of just so physical and uh, uh, requires a lot of focus, you know, to, you know, pull up the walls and um, shape them into, you know, uh, form the clay and decide on the glaze. And uh, so that's that's also really, really fun. It's something I like doing.
0: Nice. Um into any sorts of art, you know, reading movies or whatever.
1: Do I do any what?
0: Do you do you enjoy any kind of uh forms of art? Do you like see photography or do lots of reading Mm. or, or anything to also pass the time?
1: Yeah, I think um so yeah like science fiction and um uh, also like music a lot. So Stanford had these like, uh, um, cool performances over the summer. Um, a lot of jazz music and just, um, some movie screenings in, uh, uh in the big amphitheater that they have. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's super fun to uh, just, I love trying all different sorts of types of art, you know, I'll go to any kind of, uh, type of performance once and try it out, um, uh, see how it is. So, yeah, I, I find that to be really fun. Cool. Yeah. And that's
0: I think that's another thing that you need to keep in mind as a PhD uh, or grad student or even undergrad. You know, you're uh, on these campuses, you know, you can stay there like your whole, you know, uh, career as a student. But it's good to also try to get out and explore your surroundings. Um Yeah. Definitely. Okay, so I think that's a good overview. Uh good to hear you're still into photography. I, I actually took a look and I think your your skills are far beyond mine. <laughs> so glad to hear you're still keeping up I'll with have it. I'd like to go and shoot sometime. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, with that we can wrap up. Uh thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for
1: having me on. This was super fun.
0: And let's just wrap up. This is The Gradient Podcast. Check out our articles over at thegradient.pub. And you can also subscribe there to this podcast and other stuff. And, you know, do the usual thing. Support us by sharing it and reviewing and subscribing and all that. Uh, I don't know. I think we still have, like, free reviews on Apple, so we can probably get it higher i don't know anyway thank you for listening and uh, be sure to tune in to future stuff